Welcome to the newest episode of the In All Things podcast, where we host conversations with diverse voices about living creatively in God's created world. I'm your host, Justin Ariel Bailey, and I teach at Dort University, which is home to the Andreas Center, the sponsor of this podcast. On this episode of the podcast, a special treat. I interview my doctor father, my dissertation supervisor, William Durness. This episode was a real gift to me since I got to talk shop with a mentor who has deeply shaped the manner and content of my work. And in this episode, we discuss his new book, The Facts on the Ground, which gives us what he calls a wisdom theology of culture. I have learned so much from him, and I'm glad for you to join me at the table. Thank you, as always, for tuning in. About 10 years ago, whilst in the midst of pastoral ministry, I started thinking about PhD studies. The previous year, I had returned to graduate school, compelled by pressing questions from the emerging adults that I was serving. I'd become convinced that the imagination was a missing piece in both Christian witness and faith formation. But beyond reading C.S. Lewis, I wasn't sure if the imagination or the arts were the sorts of things that one could study at a theological school. So I asked my advisor if there might be a PhD program that specialized in imagination and the arts. He told me that there were three. Three places were St. Andrews in Scotland, Duke Divinity School, and Fuller Seminary. Fuller made the list in large part because of the presence and work of William Durness, and so I picked up his book, Poetic Theology. The subtitle alone nearly convinced me to apply to study with him. God and the poetics of everyday life. The book itself named so many of the intuitions that I had had about theology and culture and also provided a deep theological well previously unknown to me. I applied to study with him at Fuller. After completing the application, however, someone mentioned to me that Dr. Dernis was about to retire and was not accepting any new students. I was disappointed, but I had other options, and so I moved on. So it was with great surprise that I received an email from Dr. Dernis, telling me that he was excited to receive me as his doctoral student, perhaps his last one. That was 10 years ago. Since then, Bill has accepted a number of other doctoral students as well, and I have been on an academic journey of my own. But as I think of the mentors who have shaped me along the way, I find that I am using translating or improvising off the theological categories and convictions that I gleaned from Bill Durness. His impact on my theology is such that I would probably need to acknowledge him on nearly every page. That said, his work has something to say to more than just specialists. If you've ever encountered a missionary's heart, if you are captivated by the poetics of everyday life, or if you have wondered how to discern cultural wisdom and foolishness. I hope you enjoy this conversation about theology and culture with my mentor, William Durness. Well, I'm joined now by a distinguished guest. Uh, William Durness is Senior Professor of Theology and Culture at Fuller Theological Seminary. He has had a long and celebrated academic career and is the author of many books, Most recently, The Facts on the Ground, A Wisdom Theology of Culture from Cascade, which is the book we'll be discussing today. Uh, But most importantly, Bill was my own doctoral mentor 
and I've learned so much from him. So Bill, it is an honor to have you on the In All Things podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here, Justin. Love to talk to you. So let's start with a little bit of biography uh, for you. You've had a lifelong career in teaching and writing theology, but you've worked on areas that are a little bit less represented in the Theological Guild. So you started, you wrote your dissertation about the French painter Georges Rouault. You've written quite a bit about visual art. You've been one of the driving forces for theology and the arts. Uh, You've also worked as a missionary in the Philippines. You've done work in Kenya. You've written quite a bit about global theology and the importance of uh, listening to the majority world. So how do you connect all of these things together? Missionary work, academic writing, global theology, visual art. How are these things related and what are the common threads that make sense of your sense of vocation and just your general theological interest? Well, I think that it it's probably a good place to start is to realize that all of that is connected to an understanding and a wise use of culture. That really what, what connects those things are what, what we've come to call a theology of culture. And I'm asking the question, how is how is God at work in culture? Um, missions are very, very much concerned about that and how the gospel comes into a culture and how it's accepted or not in a culture and why it's accepted and how. But also um, the artifacts of culture in which God um, shows up, in which theological questions are raised and discussed. So I, I find that all related to a kind of theology of culture. And I have to say, I have to give credit to my wife. Actually, my wife and now my daughter both are anthropologists. And um, even my son-in-law's PhD is in, in anthropology. They, they teach at UC Boulder. So I've got a lot of anthropologists in around me to keep me uh, honest and keep me uh, sane, I think. But I, I want to say that this unique perspective on how God is present in culture has helped me both in a mission situation and I think in understanding theology and culture. I mean, in a mission situation, rather than asking how necessarily the gospel changes people or the culture, but how is the culture open to God and how is the culture ready or not to accept God? And why are certain cultures resistant to the gospel mm. and others not? So those are the kinds of questions that I've, I've asked. And recently, as you know, I've been very intrigued with the whole insider movement and asking, uh, how is it that God can be present in places where the ordinary forms of the church just simply don't exist or Christianity in its traditional form don't, doesn't exist. So that's helped me, I think, understand and ask a certain kind of questions for that. On the other hand, when you come to theology and art, as you know, my approach to cultural artifacts is very missional. In other words, where I want to ask the question, why are we interested in, in art forms at all? Well, we're interested because we want to know ways in which God might or might not be present in cultural artifacts in ways that we can mobilize culture in the service of our Christian obedience 
and in our Christian witness. Um, in all things, you know, that's the title of your podcast. And so that's, that's what I'm interested in. It's interesting the way that you even frame that. You didn't say the way that we can bring God to this culture, the way that we can bring God into, but you said the way that God is already present right. um, in a culture. And I think that maybe you could tease out a little bit more for us because oftentimes when we think about missions, we think of we're bringing, right? We're bringing something to to this this place. And and you said, well, well, first we need to see how is God already present and how is God already at work. So could you say just a little bit more about that way of thinking about what it means to be missional that doesn't start with what we are bringing, but starts with what God is already doing? Well, I that's that's a critical question because I I think we don't have an understanding of how God is is present. I mean, we do have a sort of vague sense that God is omnipresent, that God is everywhere, but. As a professor of mine used to say, philosophy professor Art Holmes used to say at Wheaton, God is not present everywhere like like ether, you know, or, or the way he described it is he had a, he had a young baby. He said it's or, or like peanut butter. You know, I mean, if you've got a baby, you know, end up peanut butter is everywhere. You know, <laughs> <laughs> he said, that's not the way God is everywhere. He, he said God is is everywhere in the sense that God is everywhere active, pursuing God's purposes, pursuing kingdom and, and new creation purposes, that that is God's business. And in a certain sense, that's a critical starting point for missions. Now, of course, the gospel has to be brought into a culture. The gospel is not endemic. It does not reside naturally in any culture. It always comes from outside because God had to enter into culture in Christ, in the incarnation, to bring salvation. So that, that, that has to be very clear. But one of the things that I've tried to do in my book and the facts on the ground is that one of the problems we have is with other religions. And of course, we, we don't want to believe that just indiscriminately all religions lead to God. Of course not. But all religions do have some forms of wisdom in them. In other words, they do, they, they, they would not have survived millennia if they did not have some form of assistance of human flourishing. What we, what I like to call wisdom. There, there's wisdom in them. They're helpful. There's wisdom. They're not salvific. And it's only the gospel that's salvific. I, I mean, I don't even want to say that Christianity per se is salvific because some forms right. of Christianity are not salvific. Right. But the gospel is salvific and the Christianity hopefully is the carrier of that precious, precious news that we call the gospel. Mm. Yeah, you mentioned the title of the book, Facts on the Ground. And when I got your book in the mail, I just laughed out loud because I was so happy with the title because I remember so fondly studying with you and hearing you use that phrase, facts on the ground. It doesn't matter if we want to go back in time. These are the facts on the ground. Um, I, I love that. And as I understand it, to deal with the facts on the ground in part means to deal with the world and our cultural situation as it presents itself to right. us. Right. Uh, exactly. But it seems like you mean a little bit more than that, too, because you're also talking about that God is at work in the facts on the ground, right. right? It's not just that this is our situation, but 
God is there too. Can you say a little more about what you mean by this phrase, facts on the ground? Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's the reality as it presents itself, as in all of its uh, nuances and all of its, uh, all of its goodness and all of its evil, all of it is what we deal with. And it's easy enough for us to critique it. And this is what Christians like to do, you know, and say, okay, there's, there's something going on in American culture, let's say, that's really evil and that we've got to stand against it. Well, that may be true. But the fact of the matter is we're complicit in this thing we call American culture and we, we're part of it. So I, I like to use maybe I used before in seminars that you'll remember. It's, it's like, we can't critique the airplane we're flying in while you're flying on we're the plane. In that airplane. That's, that's who we, yeah. that's who we are, you know, and there may be a problem with it. And, and in the case of human culture, there is always problems to deal with, but um, it, it's the facts as they present themselves. And Christian obedience always has this as a starting point. We do not escape into some other world. And people like to say, like C.S. Lewis, I'm working on C.S. Lewis right now because I'm, I'm trying to point out how often Christian thought leaders in the 20th century were opposed to modern art, which of course is what I think about. And all the while, modern art was clearly deeply influenced by religious traditions, Christianity among other uh, religious traditions. So why is it we can't make that kind of connection to see ways in which Christianity is, is at work uh, mm-hmm. rather than, than sort of critiquing? And he very clearly says that there is some cultural situations in which Christianity is in what he calls internally related. And, of course, that's the medieval world. He liked that, you know. But... Christianity is necessarily opposed to fundamental issues of modern culture. And I want to say to myself, well, I think the gospel is fundamentally opposed to all cultures in some fundamental ways. It comes as news. It even came as news in the medieval period. Otherwise, there would be nothing that we call the Reformation that had to take place, you know, but some of us think the Reformation was a good thing, you know, so <laughs> instead of the disaster that some people think it is. Right. <laughs> so, um, you know, the idea that there are certain cultures that are more open to the gospel than others, uh, well, that may be true in some relative sense, but in an absolute sense, all cultures are opposed to the gospel. Right. And the gospel brings a critique of every culture. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, part of what we're trying to do, or what you're trying to do, I think, is to acknowledge. This is why it's theology, right? Is because we are trying to acknowledge and respond to God's work. Right. Uh, we're discerning and responding to what God is doing. So something that comes, as you said, from the outside of every culture, tells us something we couldn't have told ourselves, but also makes it intelligible in our heart language and our heart logic, and theologians look for resources for affirming God's work in the wider world outside the walls of the church. And one of the most common categories has been common grace, God's creative, non-salvific favor towards his creation, providing rain, artistic inspiration, uh, civic virtue, things like that. 
which allows us to affirm everything beautiful, everything good, everything true. Uh, but you point out early in the book some of the limitations to this category of common grace, and you suggest potentially a more fruitful category is what you call cultural wisdom. So can you tell us how is cultural wisdom able to take us a little bit further, open up things in ways that common grace doesn't? Yes, when I began <clears throat> thinking about this, the facts on the ground, I began to realize that all of our theological categories that have to do with our everyday world, and I think of, in terms particularly of general revelation, and, and you know uh, the, the the work that my colleague uh, Rob Johnson has done on general revelation, which I think is very, very right. important work on God's wider presence. God's wider presence. Right. And also the, the way in which we talk about providence and even what we call common grace. All of these, when you stop to reflect on them, really have to do primarily with what God is up to in the world. And I wanted a category that didn't focus so much on God's responsibility, but rather our own responsibility in the world. Now, I think I want to say at the beginning, uh, as you well know, I consider what I'm doing very much in the tradition of common grace. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a happy uh, neo-Calvinist in that respect. So I'm, I don't mean to oppose anything. In fact, the key notion that I pick up from is Kuiper's notion of delegation, which he's very strong on his inaugural address at the Free University, that God delegates to us, to humans, the work of making culture, the making and working with culture. That's the theme I want to pick up on, that common grace and what I'm calling cultural wisdom is that which focuses primarily on human responsibility. That allows it to be sometimes uh, something admirable and something constructive, but just as often something which the, uh, the biblical tradition calls foolishness and mm. fools. Uh, and the, that, that brings me to the second reason why I chose that category is that Wisdom, after all, is a biblical category. There's a whole tradition in the Bible, the, the wisdom tradition. And what I find interesting about that tradition is that it borrows, you might say, even promiscuously from everything going on in the world at that time. Right. And uh, Israel was a little small country in the middle of a crossroads between Babylonia and Egypt and later Persia. And so there's a, a lot of wisdom in those cultures that scriptures actually take over, sometimes wholesale, you know, just quoting right. or plagiarizing, you might say, uh, and, and, and using as what we now call inspired, holy Holy Spirit-inspired scripture. Now, that process of taking over human wisdom and validating it is something that I, I wanted to underline in the book because I find it very interesting. And, and I see that present from the very first verses of Genesis, where God watched the world become itself 
and thought, hey, this is great. This is good. Chrysalis is turning into butterflies and plants germinating and you know, all of this taking place. And of course, God had made the world like that, but God loved watching it happen. Hmm. And I think that's what I see happening when God says to human wisdom, yeah. And so God, in a certain sense, incorporates wisdom into the process of making the new creation. Now, wisdom cannot bring in the new creation. That's very clear from the wisdom tradition. Joseph was a wise man, and the stories of Joseph are wisdom stories. But God had to use Moses to deliver Israel from Egypt. All of Joseph's wisdom couldn't do that. So there's a very clear distinction here between yeah. that. But at, at certain points, the line becomes, and that's one of the things I ended with, and I hope you picked up on the book. At various points, the line is hard to draw. Is this something we discovered or something that God revealed? And right. sometimes. We just don't know, you know? Yeah, and you point out, too, as well, the places where God takes credit yeah. for human work. <laughs> you know, the farmers, their God teaches them, you know, yeah. that, that sense of that line blurring and there being a sort of ambiguity of, of recognition as far as where this is coming from. And part of that ambiguity or maybe, maybe a potential danger of any time we talk about cultural wisdom or common grace or general revelation, of course, is that we would mistake historical facts on the ground for the work of God. And I'm thinking, of course, of the, the Bardian critique, which came out of the Third Reich and the theologians of his country who saw the advance of the Nazi armies as the footsteps of God. Of course, that's an extreme example. Um, it reminds me actually of one of the first times I lectured uh, for a course at Fuller, and I was kind of presenting a very similar thing, I'm sure, with something I learned from you as far as the way that the gospel can be communicated in any culture. And somebody raised their hand and said, what about the Nazis? You know, And so the Nazis are sort of this extreme case, perhaps, <laughs> that we use to uh, say, well, no, surely there are you know things that are so bad yeah. that God's not at work or God has abandoned that or something like that. And, and maybe a, a milder version of this would be, how do we discern what God is doing when we are prone also to use God to baptize our pursuits, to say, well, God is on our side. He's interested in making our cultural plans to succeed. Um, and I always remember you say, it's always easier to see syncretism in somebody else <laughs> rather than in yourself. Yeah. But how do we guard ourselves against giving God credit for the wrong things or thinking that God must be behind our plans and our projects and our people? That's the real critical question. And uh, one of the critiques that struck me about common grace was that one of the ways in which common grace is defined is that God bridles evil so that humans do not do all the evil they're capable of. When you look at the 20th century, you have to ask yourselves, was God really bridling evil there? Or isn't it the case that humans were, were more or less doing, as we see in various places, Ukraine and other places now, doing really all the evils that they are capable of? Now, that, that is allowed, from my perspective, from an understanding of cultural wisdom, 
because along with cultural wisdom, there's there, there's there's not only the wise person in in Proverbs, there's the fool, and the fool always loves doing evil and pursues evil, and we are made because of our fallen situation and on our our propensity to sin to do evil so that we are not we cannot escape the discernment that's necessary is this a good thing or is this a bad thing we can't escape that decision one of the things that i have to say led me to write this book is that one of the criticisms that was made on an earlier book poetic theology is that it was optimistic about how God can use poetics to draw people to himself. And poetics, therefore, can be a kind of beguiling term that allows us to to be optimistic about things that we can't be. So it seems to me cultural wisdom is is enough of a biblical term, enough of a focus on our responsibility to allow us to realize that we can do evil. We can do great evil. All of us are capable of doing great, great evil. And all of us are capable of doing also amazing, great and constructive things as well. We can't escape that responsibility. I came across just recently a poem by Gwendolyn McEwen. Yeah, everyone ought to know about Gwendolyn McEwen. She's the the leading poet of Canada. And she, she says in, in her poem, The Name of the Place, this is the world as we have made it, as you and I made it, and we must enter it, endure. There are unbearable things to, be, to bear, and there is a place I dare not speak of, and we have all been there, though we have not been there to get, we have not been there alone. This is the world as we have made it. You and I have made it together. We must, we're responsible. And it's that focus on our responsibility as in in the Christian sense, of course, which is always responsibility for obedience, to obey God in every situation. We can't escape that calling. And that's our, seems to me, our, our, our primary vocation as people of God. I, I don't ever say God, God is on my side. It seems to me the responsibility that's on us is to make sure we are on God's side. And that's a challenge for all of us every day of our lives. When we get up in the morning, we, we decide, am I going to be today on God's side? And, and, and what does that look like? And, and how does that play out in my life today? Always to be emissaries of the new creation in so much as in so far as we're able. That's a really helpful answer. And I think that you're right that cultural wisdom gets at the ambiguity, yeah. right, of culture. That yeah. that it whereas common grace gives us it's almost we're only affirming good things. Yeah. Cultural wisdom acknowledges our responsibility and it also acknowledges the ambiguity of all of our cultural artifacts, all of our cultural making. I think my question is, there might be a tendency that some people have to say, you know, especially in our country, to judge the success by our cultural success, uh, whether that's, you know, building up an institution and, and to say, well, how, how, how could we have done this? Who but God could have done this? And 
to attribute the success of a country or a company or, or anything that is successful by the standards of society to say, well, that must be God. That must be God in his providence or God in, you, you understand what I'm saying? That, that sense of mistaking, or I don't know if it's even mistaking necessarily, but too quickly uh, saying cultural success equals God's blessing. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And we're, we're quick to do that, as you say. Um, maybe just to back up a bit and get at it another way, people say that maybe my view of cultural wisdom is, is a tad optimistic. Well, it could be I want to come down on the side of what, I, what the theological virtue here is hope. Because at the end of the day, I do affirm very clearly the fact that God is sovereign, that we don't always see what God is doing or how God is doing it, but um, we, we believe that. That's, that's a, the fundamental theological virtue of hope, that God will one day bring about the new creation and, and, and some kind of justice and some kind of, in fact, Christ is very clear about this, and I tried to bring it out in my book, that it's God's work to judge people. That's not our work. Uh, judge not that ye be not judged. Christ is very emphatic about that. And that sure. doesn't get us off the hook of responsibility, but it does give us a sense of confidence that if we do the right thing, that not necessarily that we'll be successful, but that we uh, can hope that things will turn out right and believe they will. So that, um, mm -hmm. you know, I, I, I think we do have that, that, that sense of confidence. And we look back often in, in history. We look back in our own lives and we see very clearly the hand of God in our lives. And it wasn't always, there's very clearly, wasn't always when we were the most successful where we see that hand of God. Often, we see it at points at which we were very low at, in, in various ways, where we were in a very bad place. And somehow God uh, brought us through that situation. But yeah, we, we've got to be very clear that we don't sort of absorb standards of success and 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 so forth that are that are around mm -hmm. us but rather work toward what we regard as true wisdom what would you say would be the criteria for discernment we're not making ultimate judgments only right paul says i don't even judge myself right, right? only god can only god is the ultimate judge all of us though are required to make these provisional on the ground judgments that are required in discernment. So what are the criteria, when we come to the cultural wisdom, when we encounter the facts on the ground uh, in whatever situation we're in, what are the criteria by which we distinguish between foolish, cultural foolishness and, and a wisdom that actually resonates such that it could be taken up in the way that we see in scripture? Provisional judgment calls to mind, of course, uh, calls to mind the, the idea of first and second things. And I think that when our first and second things, provisional judgment can align with God's judgment, 
is when we are seeking the, the human flourishing of people around us to the end of forming communities that may eventually be able to turn to God in worship and praise. Mm-hmm. I, I, I find those steps to be, for me anyway, uh, necessarily important and central. Uh, we seek human flourishing in such a way that we realize that we're all together in this community, but that we want that community to be ultimately able to be a place where God is thanked and praised and, and, and worshipped aright. Uh, uh, but but that, that isn't necessarily, I, and I have to say, when I look around on cultural practices around me today in North America, I find very often what is hopeful are things that are happening outside the doors of the church. And what are very discouraging to me are things that I see happening within the church. So I, I think we have to be very careful that we don't try to make the world a fallen place and make churches an unfallen place because then we're in trouble in both respects, because we lose the sense of what God may be doing outside the church, and we also lose the sense in which God may be judgmental about things going on inside the church. And I have some pages about that at the beginning of the book, when I feel that what was happening during the pandemic about forming human communities, about taking care of the earth, about learning to serve people serve each other and take care of each other, was very hopeful in many respects. Mm. Uh, People really caring for each other, especially for older and vulnerable people. A lot of that was really very genuine and very important. But these things were not necessarily how it was happening within the church. In fact, sometimes the church was, was actually actively opposed to some of those things, you know, refused to wear a mask and all the rest of it. So this is... This is why I think cultural wisdom is is so important for us to hold on to and to hmm. see. Uh, you interact with Kuiper substantially in the early part of the book. As you know, Kuiper is important to many of the listeners of this podcast. We've done episodes on Kuiper and Bavink, um, warts and all, right? So we know that there are some problematic aspects of his legacy, but we are trying to continue on in the same way. You've studied with Hans Ruckmacher. You've worked within this neo-Kuiperian tradition uh, for a long time. And so I wonder if you could first talk about how you ended up working with this tradition, what resources you found in it uh, that made you want to have it as a primary conversation partner for your work. And then if you could give us a little bit of critique or for those of us who are trying to work within it, trying to go on in the same way, in a sense, what what would you have to say? So the first part is, how did you end up uh, working in the Neo-Kyperian tradition? And then how would you direct us as we also try to continue on in the same way? Well, I remember um, first it was uh, a, a Presbyterian minister whose name I can't recall at the moment who said, have you ever read Kuiper's lectures on Calvinism? And I, of course, I had, had never, even though I considered myself Reformed. So uh, I got that. And I... I, I think that book really was probably fundamental in my formation, although 
you know, I was influenced by Schaefer and by Rookmarker, both of whom are reformed in their general uh, perspective. But but the idea that the, the basic fundamental framework of theology is creation, new creation. That that changes everything when you when you when you put things in that category, rather than creation, fall, and then redemption. And of course, redemption is there, but it's it's taken up into new creation. And of course, in in Dutch, it's even clearer because redemption is the term is herschepping. Shaping, her shaping, and um, so that that creation, recreation is is the fundamental framework, and so recreation is about taking what God has made and enhancing it, making it more universal, more characteristic of our life together, and so forth. So um, I just found that framework so compelling and and interesting, and so. Bovink, I read at Kuiper. I'm, I'm on my table is his lectures on systematic theology that I, I constantly am referring to, and I find myself very much uh, agreeing with it. But as I began to think about these things historically, and I'm drawn to historical questions, as you know, and I began to realize that Kuiper, and to a lesser extent, but also Bavink were 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 really still people of their day. They're people of their time, and that led him, for example, to the 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 notion of the the contradiction between Christian faith and unbelief. And I went to Amsterdam, so I read Unbelief and Revolution, Grand Ron van Prinster, and all, and understand that that if you live in the shadow of the French Revolution, French Revolution which is a different kind of revolution than we had in America, where, where the church is protected, supposedly sequestered in a certain way, whereas the, the church is, is actually uh, denied its existence. In So all the monasteries are closed and there's all this secularity going on. Well, if you're, you're living in that kind of an environment, then I think that you do talk about cut the contradiction between belief and unbelief. And you realize that all the major thought patterns of Darwinism, Nietzsche, Freud, all of them are strongly anti-religious in in some fundamental way. You tend to read culture in a different way. Uh, Incidentally, I think Chesterton and C.S. Lewis also are guilty of that kind of misreading of contemporary culture. And that's partly a problem why we have a problem with modernity and modern art and modern culture is that we're, 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 there's an overhang. There's a 19th century overhang uh, that, that we're still wrestling with. Whereas in the case of another reading of the 19th century, that of Charles Taylor, you can look in Romanticism to see ways in which art opened up the world to God, not closed it down. So uh, that's a different reading of those things. So I began to feel that we needed to sort of critique, first of all, his notion of the, the, the contradiction between belief and non-belief. And secondly, the, the notion of sphere sovereignty 
which I think overemphasizes the distinction between various practices that, that, and, and it leads to a kind of silo and it, it's an essentialism of culture that I think that contemporary understandings of culture have led us to see as mistaken in some fundamental ways. So these are the kinds of critiques that I think that we need to make of uh, that tradition. And the people I know and respect most in that tradition, Koi van der Koy and others, would, would readily agree that that's right, that those are the kind of conversations that we need to have while affirming our general alliance with that, uh, with that tradition. Thanks for that. That's great. We have talked about the differences between public theology and cultural theology, but I wonder if you could just say what, what, you've do, what you're doing is what we might call cultural theology. Is that different than public theology? How do you understand cultural theology as opposed to public theology? Yeah, public theology is something that sort of burst on the scene, hasn't it, in the last 25, 30 years? And, um, I, you know, it's something that, I mean, I think that it's not a new thing. Uh, it was going on, but it's got a new name to it and a new prominence, a new visibility. There's a, a serious overlap between cultural uh, theology and political theology. But political theology has much more to do with the sort of formal structures, especially political structures, uh, formal structures of, of a society, whereas cultural theology really can be much more understood as dealing with the much the softer aspects and the sort of sometimes informal aspects of culture. Uh, for example, as you know, I want to have a strong place for play and media and entertainment and fashion. These are all things that, as you know, my PhD students have worked on, you among them. And, and so that, that we can deal with these kind of much more civil society, cultural, uh, generally broadly cultural uh, phenomenon, which I like the fact that, that uh, Calvin says that, you know, some people say these things are important, but they are more important than we usually give them credit for. And that's true because there's always a danger of idolatry and all these things. There's a danger of, of spending overly too much time, attention on them and resources rather than other things. So, but these are very important dimensions of our life together. Maybe that's a good way to finish. Uh, I was privileged to be one of your students, uh, and you have many students that you've mentored in this way of doing theology, cultural theology. And so, as you kind of pass the torch to us, to not just your PhD students, but to all of those who want to do culturally attuned theology, what would you wish for us? And is there anything you worry about as we go go about that project? No, I I don't have any worries. And I <laughs> I in fact I would challenge you to go into thinking about areas that we ordinarily don't think about. I've been reading a lot about, you know, sort of the, the historical cosmological questions and things. And I think that we need to ask ourselves the question of how God is interested in our discoveries, how God is interested in 
what we make of what we find with the the new uh, telescope that's just been been deployed and so forth and and to go into those areas and i i think there's also all kinds of digital worlds out there that we need to be exploring the the whole idea of distributed sensibilities uh has been raised by physicists now about how we how we understand the world by using making use of all kinds of ways of perceiving the world together so that this these are become distributed perceptual hmm. experiences that we together can put together and see the world and these are coming out of people that are not necessarily christians frank wedcheck i'm i'm reading uh he's a nobel prize winner physicist but i think we need to pay attention to them we need to learn from them as you could probably tell, Bill and I could talk about these things for a very long time. We're going to bring it to a close here. Our guest has been William Durness. The book is The Facts on the Ground, A Wisdom Theology of Culture, published by Cascade. Bill, it's been such a pleasure to have you on the In All Things podcast. Thank you, Justin. Always good to talk to you. Very stimulating. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the In All Things podcast from the Andreas Center at Dort University. Original music is provided by The Ruralist, and thanks are in order to Ruth Clark, Shannon Vischer, Vaughn Donahue, and the production team at the Andreas Center. You can find us online at inallthings.org or follow us on Twitter under the name at in underscore all underscore things. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever podcasts are found. And if you find our content beneficial, please help us out by leaving a review and sharing with others. Thanks for tuning in.